Hello, welcome to the Raw Podcast. I'm your host for this afternoon, James Copley. I'm joined as ever by my Sunderland Echo colleague, Joe Nicholson. And we're joined by Ethan Todd, Sunderland fan, and also joined, uh, also works in the, the journalism industry as well. Ethan, Joe, how are you both doing? Yeah, pretty good. Um, yeah, good, mate. Thank you. I think better than most Sunderland fans were on Saturday afternoon. Yes, indeed. So Sunderland have won just once in their last five games. Three losses on the spin. <laughs> Joe, obviously a, a heavy loss to Stoke City. Alex Neal's Stoke City at the Stadium of Light 5-1, which I believe is Sunderland's uh, worst defeat at home since, I think, 19, the 1980s, something like that I read earlier. So a very poor day at the office. Yeah, without question, it was a kind of lowest point of the season, wasn't it? Sunderland hadn't lost by more than two goals up until Saturday. And obviously it's by Tony Mowbray and Danny Bart said it after the game, it was unacceptable to lose 5-1 at home. There was a big crowd there, 43,000, and Sunderland were, were outplayed really. I think the game played out how we thought it could play out. Sunderland saw more of the ball. Stoke in previous games, when they've had more possession, have struggled in their last league game before this game against Sunderland. They had over 70% possession and lost 1-0 against Millwall. But then in the, their last victory, they'd beaten Swansea, having around 30% possession. So they're clearly suited to being a counter-attacking side. We knew that coming into the game. Tony Mowbray tried to counter that by bringing Alex Pritchard into the midfield in the first half. Um, and Sunderland still look like they're missing that holding midfield player without Corey Evans in the side. We've spoke a lot about recently the lack of of a natural striker up front in Ross Stewart. But I think now in the last few matches, we've started to see that the lack of a holding midfielder to prevent that counter-attack has really been really damaging for Sunderland. And that kind of showed on Saturday, Will Smallbone, probably the man of the match for Stoke. He got three assists and particularly the second goal, he had a lot of space. He needed to kind of pick out his man and, and make it 2-0. And the, the opening goal was always going to be crucial, I think. And for it to come four minutes before half-time, really put Sunderland on the back foot and then they came out and had to chase the game in the second half and and it was a bit of a mess really in the end so yeah really disappointing afternoon which again highlighted some probably gaps in the squad um where Mowbray felt he couldn't make changes in the side and it kind of caught up with Sunderland on Saturday. Indeed a hat-trick of assists for Will Smallbourne on loan from uh, Southampton he was actually linked with Sunderland in the summer. Uh, Ethan I thought that the game was a, a stark reminder to Sunderland fans of just how good Alex Neal is. I think a few um, had convinced themselves that maybe Alex Neal actually wasn't that good and that there was a really good squad of players in League One to get Sunderland promoted and um, and that Tony Mowbray had done so well with Sunderland because Stoke have been patchy, to say the least, under Alex Neal that actually wasn't really that good. For me, tactically, that was a, a reminder that he's probably up there with the best in the league. Yeah, definitely. I think... Obviously, the circumstances that Alex and I are left in, I think, can, well, evidently mar some Sunderland fans' kind of belief in his ability. But, yeah, Saturday's result just shows, and we all know, because without Alex Neil, we wouldn't have had any chance of promotion. Like, with Lee Johnson, we would just, we were never looking like we were going to go. Um, I think, yeah, the way that our midfield was just sort of totally nullified, I think he had sort of the right play right players deployed in the right places and I think it really sort of stopped any attacking intent we had and Geldart was just totally isolated which just 
just led to nothing going forward. I just thought we were a bit toothless going forward and just looked like we were out of ideas. And then when we've been sucker punched on the counter attack multiple times, it just yeah, just takes away any chance of getting back into the game, really. Joe, what's your thoughts on the sort of Tony Mowbray versus Alex Neal debate that's sort of inevitably, inevitably come along because the two teams have faced each other? But I was thinking about this the other day and I thought Alex Neal's probably a better tactician than Tony Mowbray. Yet with this group of players, I'm not sure that they play the same brand of free-flowing attack and football, which has looked so good under Alex Neal. They're, they're very different characters. Yeah, they're very different characters, just the way they come across and the way they talk in press conferences. You, you can see that. Um, I think with Tony Mowbray, obviously, he's very focused on what his team does with the ball. And I think out of possession, we saw kind of the limitations of that or kind of the downfalls of that on, on Saturday. Obviously, Mowbray has been a very good fit since he's come in to Sunderland, working with this young group of players and, and Sunderland actually fallen upon with Alex Neal leaving. Mowbray coming in and it, it has worked pretty well. We've seen Sunderland play some excellent stuff this time, um, this season with the ball, but without the ball, clearly tactically, Alex Neal maybe is a bit more pragmatic. We saw that on on Saturday, where Alex Neal knew firsthand what it takes to come and win at the Stadium of Light, and we saw last season when he came in and he used the crowd to Sunderland's advantage, but he also knew that. When, when he came in, there was a low confidence. It was maybe a bit of a burden playing at the, at the Stadium of Light. And he knew how to kind of calm the, calm the crowd down. You could see when, whenever Sunderland had a bit of momentum, when they scored that goal to make it back to 3-1, the place livened up a little bit. And straight away, I think it was Ben Pearson went down for Stoke and completely killed any sort of momentum. So he kind of knew what he, was, what he wanted his side to do, how to kind of tame the crowd. Um, and I thought they executed the game plan pretty perfectly, didn't they, Stoke, and, and came away with a 5-1 win. We'll come to you first, Joe, on this, and then we'll, we'll move to Ethan. But just on, on tactics in terms of systems and formations, Sunderland pretty rigidly these days, I say rigidly, there are variations within matches and stuff, but they, they tend to set up a 4-2-3-1 um, with sort of three attacking midfielders in behind Gelhart. Diallo and Roberts playing close to each other. Clark's usually over on the left, a bit wider. Um, I can't really remember the last time Sunderland deviated from that plan. Um, and it's it's a it's a fine plan that, that has worked well. Uh, we've seen it work well in, in games. That's why Sunderland were knocking on the door of the playoffs just a couple of weeks ago. But is that rigidity in terms of start 11 and team selection, the way Sunderland set up for these games, hurting Tony Mowbray a bit? Whereas Alex Neal, we saw from his time at Sunderland and his time at Stoke, He's not afraid to change his system, tinker, go four at the back, go five at the back. I know Tony Mowbray has changed his personnel, bringing Pritchard in. You can debate whether that worked or not and whether he has the options behind. But in terms of the formation, is sticking to that maybe hurting Sunderland a little bit when perhaps five at the back um, may have benefited them against Stoke? Potentially, yeah. I think when Mowbray came in, he kind of stuck with what Neil had been playing, hadn't he? Which was a back three with I think Clark was playing wing back at the time and he kind he of was. just thought that was working. So we stick with that. And then slowly we've seen them move to this kind of four, two, three, one. I think Mowbray would argue as well as you've got to kind of play to the players you have available. Yep. Clearly at the minute, Sunderland have a lot of technical players who want to come to feet, want to receive the ball. And they've tried to play to their strengths in obviously they can't without Ross Stewart or without a Sims up front go more direct as maybe they did earlier in the season. And they've got to try and play through midfield. But I think, yeah, at times you have got to be a little bit more 
pragmatic because we saw on Saturday that the team kind of physically Stoke had a very solid championship midfield in Josh Laurent, Ben Pearson um, mm. and Smallbone. Um, and Sunderland were second best in that area. And I think sometimes you do have to adapt um, in that area. But as I said, Mowbray will, will argue um, maybe they didn't have the players to do that. We've said all season that they don't have a natural replacement for Corey Evans in that holding midfield role. Um, could Pierre Equa play that role? We haven't really seen enough of him um, at senior level. Could Luke O'Neill have played there? But then he's had to fill in at fullback in the last couple of matches. So I think just recently we've seen kind of the lack of squad depth um, that there is um, and maybe some limited options for Mowbray. It's an interesting point that, isn't it, Ethan? Because Tony Mowbray is all about playing to the player's strength that he has, as Joe's just mentioned. Um, but Alex Neil was all about the system and, and the off-the-ball work, as, as we've previously mentioned as well. Where do you stand on Sunderland for, Sunderland's formation at the moment going into these games? Is there an argument for, for three in the middle? Is there an argument to, to play more defenders? Where do you stand on it? Well, I think I think Saturday's game has kind of shown that, like what Joe said, that we are really missing Corey Evans because mm. Neil just looked, to me, just looked totally lost and totally isolated on, him, on his own in the centre of the park. Um, obviously, it's been well documented. He has made a couple of mistakes leading to goals. Um, but he is still young. He's still learning. But I think having that experienced sort of screener of Evans beside him, I think, I think gives him a bit more confidence, a bit more belief because we know how tidy Neil is on the ball. We've all seen it and there wouldn't be Premier League interest in him without that. Um, yeah. But I think when I saw the lineup, I did initially worry if you're going to go with a 4-2-3-1. I think I can see the idea behind playing Pritchard in there because we're not going as direct. So having a really tidy, neat player like Pritchard in the centre midfield to rather than hitting a 20-30 yards of Stewart, we've got to give it to Gellar's feet and get it in in and around that area with quick passes. So I can see the idea behind playing Pritchard there, but he's just not holding midfielder. And I think you're saying on the, you can see on the first goal that he's just ball watching and his, he loses his man. It's his man who it gets square to and he just he's just ball watching. So I think it's getting to the point where we've been putting square pegs in round holes and they're no longer fitting. Mm. So I think personally I would have had or nine in centre midfield. I know he's not the greatest technically, certainly not as technical as Neil, but just having that presence and a bit physical physicalness about him. Um and I think I think it might be time to give Equago as well, yeah. I mean, there's also times on Saturday that Roberts was having to drop into centre midfield. You had kind yeah. of Pritchard and Roberts. I didn't, I didn't understand and that. And that we, Roberts, we that that's, yeah, back. it's not his strength, is it? Where you, he's having to run back and do the defensive, where he's much more kind of effective, getting on the front foot and running at people. You don't really want him back in your own penalty area. So, yeah, obviously in hindsight, the, the team selection can be can be. Um, picked apart, but it did seem a strange one even before the game. That's that's the balancing act, though, isn't it? Because Stoke may well have won that game five one even if someone had started three midfielders, um, three central midfielders and sort of a 4-3-2-1. But then we're having the conversation, or has Tony Mowbray been too conservative? You know, if he'd, if he'd have dropped... It's actually a pretty hard sell. I know they haven't been at their electric best, Joe, but it's actually a pretty hard sell to, to drop one of Clark, Roberts or Diallo. It's it's difficult. It's difficult to justify that, even though Sunderland have, have lost the last three games. They're three of Sunderland's best players over the season. They are, but I think it's starting to see now that there, is, there does need to be a balance in the squad. Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, Roberts, Ahmad, Clark, Pritchard, they're all very good technical players and they've linked up and played some really good stuff at times. 
but you've got to have that protection, I think, in front of the back four, which we've seen kind of in the past kind of couple of games. The Coventry game before the Stoke game kind of acted as a as kind of the perfect example. Sunderland had, what, 70% possession, but they got hit twice on the counter-attack. Um, and then that was just kind of more evident against Stoke uh, on Saturday. So you need that kind of balance in the side. That's what Corey Evans brought. Um, but I think we were saying in the summer that they, they didn't have a natural replacement for Corey Evans. And I think they were trying to sign kind of a backup option at the end of the summer transfer window. They've been fortunate that Evans had been available for most of the first half of the campaign. Neil and Mishu kind of looked like they were forming a, a promising partnership kind of around January time. They played really well in that win over Middlesbrough, but it's a lot to kind of keep asking them to kind of churn out yeah. uh, performances game after game. And now I think, as we've mentioned before, we're starting to see kind of holes in the squad and that lack of depth as we kind of get towards the end of the season. Well, Joe, this is why I feel um, I feel for Dan Neal. Has he been his best? Probably not. Has he made some few... Well, has he made a couple of mistakes? Yes, as Ethan mentioned. Um, but I think he's knackered. I think physically and mentally, he's 21. Um, he played a lot of games last season. But then if you remember, Alex Neal actually took him out the firing line and probably rightly so. He, he needs that, I think, again now. But you can't... Again, it's another, another decision Mowbray is going to struggle to justify because the players that are behind him are seriously inexperienced. Ethan, and I guess that's that's a flaw with this recruitment model in adverted commas, is that, yes, it gives the likes of, of Dan Neal, Anthony Patterson, Dennis Serkin a chance to shine, but with the squad size the way it is and the experience levels the way they are, you're a couple of injuries um, away from actually the back end of the season being really to the detriment of Dan Neal and, and his development. I think there's a there's a very fine line between throwing players in, giving them first team, team experience, upskilling them, getting them playing. You know, the progress Dan Neal, Dan Neal has made has been sensational. But you also have to be wary of, of his welfare, both mentally and physically, um, especially towards the back end of the season where games come thick and fast. And, you know, he needs to be protected as, as well. And, and a lot of these, a lot of these youngsters do. I feel. Yeah, I think not. Not to obviously keep bringing it back to Alex Neil. We've uh, we've lost one game. We've been brilliant under Tony Mowbray. But like you were saying before about the pragmatism with Alex Neil, I think he did right taking Dan out of the side for that period of time when he was struggling. But like you say, with this recruitment model, Neil is one of our. With Evans out, he's probably our most experienced centre midfielder, despite the fact that he's still only sort of in the infancy of his career. Um, so there is a lot of pressure being thrust on his shoulders. And obviously we know that he's like, we know that he's a local lad and he's a, that he's a Sunderland fan. So I can imagine that the sort of stark mistakes that he's made would, would cut even deeper given the fact that he is a Sunderland fan. And we know that sometimes, sometimes local, local players can sort of get the rub of the green and sometimes they can be given a bit of undue stick. But I think it is kind of showing that the squad depth is lacking slightly. Um, I think Neil does, he does need a rest. Like you're saying, he does look knackered. He, he looks dog-like. His legs just, he, he just looks like needs a rest. And I think, I think Mowbray is going to have to make a decision whether he sticks or twists. And it's going to have to rely on some other players who aren't either, haven't got as much experience as Neil or don't play in that natural position like he does to have to come in to support him, I think. That's the it thing, Joe. Who, who were the who, who? I was going to say, who were the candidates to to replace Dan Neal in that specific role at the moment? 
you were at the under-21s game last night. They played Stoke. They, they fared very well. Equa played in that game. There's also Abdullah Bar. Who do you think would be the natural the natural fit for, for Neil in that role? To, to my eyes, it's probably Equa, but mm. from what I've seen of him, obviously you've seen him a bit more in the under-21s. He doesn't actually look like a, a screen and number six to me, but I understand he did play there um, against Stoke yesterday. Well, that's a dilemma, isn't it? I think Dan Neil has clearly, you know, you, you only got to look back a couple of months ago, that game against Middlesbrough, I think he was probably man of the match there and looked like he was playing um, really well. But I think the game on Saturday, it would have been tough for anyone in that kind of holding role in there by yourself against kind of three established championship midfielders that Stoke had. Corey Evans could have been in that role and could have still struggled. But Neil's, you know, he's, he's having to almost learn a new position, really kind of dropping into that deeper role where he's probably been more effective in the box-to-box role, kind of making runs into the box and and providing a goal threat at times. Um, so it has been tougher in the last kind of couple of games. In terms of the natural replacement, I think that's kind of the issue because we spoke to Dan Neil after the Coventry game and he's he admitted that he's basically the oldest midfielder now in the in the squad with Evans out. He's only 21. And he's um, actually, when you consider all nine as well, I think Dan Neil's probably more experienced than all nine playing in midfield in the Championship. Possibly, yeah, I think. But... Um, I think, you know, Daniel, as we've said, he's got a lot of qualities and he's one of kind of the younger leaders in the side in what is a very young squad. Um, you could quite easily see him being captain kind of of the side in the future. But at the minute, probably has lost a bit of confidence with the last few games, but he's having to play this new role. Mm-hmm. And the as we've mentioned before, the, the alternatives there, there's not a huge depth. So, as you said, Ek was probably the obvious one, but we've not seen him start a game at senior level yet. I thought he played well yesterday for the under-21s against Stoke. He is that kind of more power, powerful physical presence in there, was looking to receive the ball off the off the centre-backs and made some kind of powerful runs through midfield. At times, he probably wanted a bit too much time on the ball and got caught on it a, a couple of times. So it's up to Mowbray now. Does he feel that he can step up to senior level? I think I don't think it will be too long before we see him because just because of the lack of options in there. And then the other one, of course, is 09, which perhaps is a strange one because I thought he did really well in midfield at QPR. Um, and then he hasn't played there since. He had to cover it. Uh, it was at right back at Rotherham and then he came on at left back against Stoke. So for whatever reason, he's not really kind of trusted 09 to come back into that central midfield role, which is maybe a slightly confusing one considering some of them have lacked that physicality in there, I think, in recent weeks. So they're kind of the the options that he's got but none of them are really ideal when you're having to chop and change your side because there are a lack of lack of options I can't remember which game it was Joe I remember it being at home possibly the Redden game but I'm sure I'm sure Tony Mowbray came out in the press conference afterwards and said look and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit look Luke O'Neill's not going to play centre midfield for this club yet and then the next game he did and then the next game he did and he came off the bench and stuff you know, maybe he was playing mind games with us or just thrown down the gauntlet to Luke or nine. But yeah, that is a strange one. We'll, we'll stay with the under-21s, Joe, um, and we'll weave it into first-team questions as well because the star of the show last night was Harry Gardner scoring a hat-trick. Um, Sutherland a light up front, the first team, so that's obviously prompted the sort of usual clamour that you get when, when the first team's struggling and, and an under-21 player scores a couple of goals. Uh, people want to see him involved. To your eye, does he look ready? Um, honestly, I don't think... I think it's a big step up. I think yeah. Harry Gardner, um, he's been doing well for the under-21 side. He's only 19. He's been nominated for 
the Premier League Two Player of the Month for the last month of February. Scored three goals last night, or I think the, the, the last one, there was some debate whether it was his goal or whether it was his own goal. They were all kind of close-range finishes, so he, he did well to kind of get on the end of them. But there have been games, I think this, well, from when I watched from the 21s, he has looked quite lightweight at times. And I think it will be a very big step up to kind of go and play championship football against some big experienced centre-halves. I think we saw it earlier in the season, didn't we, when Sunderland didn't have a striker, and I think Max Thompson scored a hat-trick. And there were perhaps some calls for him to maybe step up and come into the side. Max Thompson actually has been side up with an ankle injury, so he would be playing for the under-21 side if it wasn't for the injury. As it turns out, Harry Gardner has been playing because of that injury. So, um, And Mowbray didn't feel that Max Thompson was ready at that time earlier in the season. He thought it would be better to play with a false nine, whether that be Pritchard, whether that be Jack Clark or Ahmed. So I think it's still early for, for Harry Gardner to be thrown in there. We've seen it with Joe Galhart is very difficult just to be kind of thrown in on your own up top and, and try to make an impact. So, um, But I think from the, the 21s game last night, I think it was encouraging to see Equa play in the holding role. So that's why I say it may not be too long before we see him come into the side. Lee Hadji's looked pretty bright as well. Um, obviously, he's still adapting to a new country. So um, we might see him a bit more as well. Bennett played as well. Barr was probably the, the star of the show um, for the, the 21s last night, playing in the more advanced midfield position. So I think I don't think we'll probably see him in a deeper role. I think we saw that earlier in the season against Cardiff, didn't we? It didn't really work. So I think Eck was probably more suited to the deeper role and Barr maybe a bit, a bit further forward. But um, there probably were some encouraging performances for the, for the 21s last night. Yeah, I think it's great that Harry Gardner's doing so well and great for him to get a hat-trick. But I think, Ethan, a parachute him in to... Sunderland's first team in terms of starting just because it's not working at the moment with Geldhart, I think is is a bit premature, a bit hasty. By all means, reward him with a with a spot on the bench or or a place in the squad or or take him take him down to Norwich, similarly to to what they've done with um with Chris Rigg at times this season. But to just parachute him in there, I think is a is a bit hasty, isn't it? Yeah, I think some Sunderland fans and rightly so do have the gripes about the average age of our squad, I think it might be just under 23 years, which is very, very young. And I think if you're throwing in a lad from the under 21s, I think that just exacerbates those complaints and those problems, which are, which you can say have justified. I think there'll always be shouts for like young lads, like, yeah, like Chris Rigg to come through. And he's obviously proven that, well, one, he's extremely talented. And two, he has, even if his young age, he has the right to be sort of in the contention to be in the match day squad, not necessarily starting games. But I think just because Gerald, obviously he hasn't hit the ground running and he's obviously low on confidence and he doesn't particularly suit the system that he's been, that we're trying to play him in. I don't think that justifies bringing in someone from the under 21s because I think it hinders Gerald, who is probably going to be more suited. He's more experienced and at this level as well. And it's going to hinder Gardner's development as well because it's more than likely not going to go fantastically well. Like you said, it's a very physical league and like Joe said, he probably isn't ready. So I think we just need to keep going with the younger cohort that we have, but don't need to drop in in the 21s. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because obviously he's only 19, but we've seen players of a of a similar age come in and make an impact on in Sunderland's first team squad. But I think it, it tends to always vary on a case-to-case basis, doesn't it? Some, some players... Can get minutes in the first team at 15, like Chris Rigg, exceptional circumstance and case. 
Um, some players don't make the the first team debut till till much later. So, yeah. But for me, from what I've seen of Harry Gardner, um, which hasn't been his past couple of games, but from what I've seen of him over the years, it doesn't strike me as ready just yet. I, I think he could absolutely get there, and I think he's got seven in ten in the Premier League two this season, which is a remarkable record. And big step up there. I think the physicality. It, it is a, it's, it's a massive... someone like someone like Agielise, for example. You, you look at the mm. size of him; he's like six foot three or six foot four. And yeah, you can yeah. naturally make that step up. I think Equa's similar. Um, you've got to think you've just got to have that physicality about you. That well, that, that's the thing. thing. Like you'll have watched Harry Gardner yesterday, Joe, play well and score three goals. But could he play against Danny Ballard or yeah. Danny Bath? Probably not at this stage. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that's that's kind of the big thing. And, and speaking to people like. Elise and, and Sirkin, they say that's kind of the biggest difference between mm. playing under 23s football, under 21s football, then coming up and playing in the championship. It is a big kind of jump. Well, and, and, and look at look at the likes of Sirkin and Trey Hume in, in League mm. One and then and then the championship. I mean, they've been really good players for Sunderland this season, but it didn't just happen for them immediately. Same same with same with Elise and he's six foot four. It took him a while as well. Yeah, you've got to be able to throw them in at the right time. As you see, you can't just throw them in and kind of expose them to, to playing championship football. I mean, even Galhart has been has been difficult for him, even though he's been playing yeah, yeah. in the Premier League. But it's difficult for him because he's not really playing the position that he's been been played. Um, ideally, he would have been playing alongside someone like a Ross Stewart, um, not instead of him. Um, he's yeah. having to play this role, and it's it's been very tough for him in, in the in the first few games. You can see he's working hard. He's He's trying his best for the team, but it's not natural for him to to kind of run in behind and, and stretch opponents as Stuart did. Um, he wants to come short and, and wants to drop defeat, so that's it's been very difficult for him. So then dropping someone from the under twenty ones into that environment is probably going to be even tougher. I think. Just uh, quickly, Joe, talk us through the situation with the under twenty one manager at the moment. For those that aren't aware, there's a bit of background on this. Carl Robinson was sacked or left uh, manager of Oxford United in League One. You may remember him from calling the police during a, during a League One game at the Stadium of Light during COVID. I'd forgotten about that. Anyway, I digress. Um, he's been sacked. Graham Murty, the under-21 Sunderland boss, had been linked uh, quite heavily with the job, actually. Joe, you spoke to, to Graham Murty um, last night. What did he say, bearing in mind that this is a, a position that Sunderland have only just managed to get filled, really, in the, in the last sort of six months? Yeah, Graham Mercy, he only came in in October, so he's not been in the under-21s job that long. Um, recent reports, kind of probably in the last week or so, since Robert, um, Carl Robinson was sacked by Oxford, linking Graham Mercy to the Oxford job, saying that he's reportedly on their shortlist of managers. He's now kind of, well, looking at the kind of the betting and, and stuff like that, he's kind of dropped down, asked him about it last night, and he said he's had no approach from, from Oxford or no contact from them. Um, he's quite happy with what he's doing at Sunderland. He said he, he wouldn't rule anything out, um, but it doesn't look like he'd be, be leaving for that Oxford job. It looks like kind of other people are ahead of him in kind of in their kind of short list of people that they're, they're looking to appoint. So um, it was a good win for them last night. Obviously, a few of the first team players dropped in, as we mentioned before. I think it was about five first team players overall played for the, the 21s last night. Um, and it was good for them to get a quite convincing 4-1 win. Overstoke and players like Barr, like Equa, Lahadji, Bennett really did stand out. And as you'd probably expect them to at that level, if, you, if you're going to drop yeah. them into a game like that. Uh, Sunderland's first team are now 10th after the, the loss to, to Stoke City. So that means they are now six points off the playoffs 
Ethan, what are your expectations for the rest of the season, given given the the recent results? Everybody's very damn beat at the moment, of course. Yeah, I think it it's easy to get carried away both ways. I think the momentum in this league can be so strong, and the games come so thick and fast that if you have a bad bad week and a half, two weeks like we've had, and then it seems all doom and gloom, or you could go on a brilliant run, and then you just like Middlesbrough have done that trajectory just keeps going going the right way. But I think. I think obviously expectations do change as you go through the season and it, it would be disappointing to miss out on the playoffs, but I do also think in the same breath that it might be the best thing for us in the long run, especially with the development of the players and the squad that we've got. So I think I think we will miss out on the playoffs, but if that does turn out to be the case, I don't think it's easy to be disappointed because we know how well we have been playing and we know that we were comfortably in the playoffs only a couple of weeks ago, but... I do think we'll miss out, yeah. The flip side of that, I suppose, Ethan, and I'll, I'll get your opinion on this as well, do you think that, that Sunderland's ownership and sporting director, so Kira Louis-Dreyfus, Christian Speakman, they're like, do you think they've they've missed the boat in January? I've seen them accused of lacking ambition as well. Where, where do you where do you stand on on that sort of viewpoint? I know voices tend to be amplified on, on social media. I think, for me personally, generally, I think we can be pretty happy while still being a little bit annoyed at the the striker situation and, and what's gone on in January. I don't I've, I've seen people claim that Sunderland have weakened every position that they've recruited and I don't necessarily think that's true because a lot of it's for the future in mind. But do you do you think there was a, a chance there for Sunderland to really go for it and do you think that chance has been missed? Well I th- the chance was definitely there and I think if you're looking if you're looking in January it's one or it's one or two transfers and one or two decisions away from us probably, and one or two injuries as well. I think the ownership and the hierarchy can't be held at fault for your captain and your arguably your best player, but your most important player, your goal scorer, getting injured and out for the season in the space of a week. Um, but it's a, it's a nuanced discussion. Like I think, like you were saying, fans on social media can seem to be either black or white. But obviously, football often operates in the grey area, and I think, I think that we've made some excellent recruitment this season, and it's been it's been shown. Uh, but ultimately, if we do miss out on the playoffs, it is it is coming because we have failed to recruit enough players in the right areas and to cover for who we've lost. So I think they can be held accountable for leaving us with one striker in the shape of Gelda. It wasn't really even a number nine. But then they should also be praised for some of the astute signings that we've made. So I think you've got to come at it from both both sides and give them the fair due. But I think that it's more so the recruitment fault than it would be, for example, Tony Mowbray's fault if we do miss out in the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you mention you can't really legislate for for Stewart and, and Evans going down within a week. And, and to a to a degree, I agree, because it is pretty unlucky. But Joe, I suppose on that as well, and talking about nuances, an argument to suggest that if Sunderland actually had a deeper squad in the first place, then that mightn't have necessarily happened. I know we're dealing in sort of if, buts and maybes. Um, but the, the model, for want of a better word, is is starting to, to show a few cracks in it and I think the impression I get from Sunderland fans and it's hard to disagree actually is that the model isn't the problem it's 
just how rigidly it's been enforced in terms of there wasn't much flexibility in January when perhaps there was a chance if we'd have spent a little bit of money or, or you know, some money um, to, to bring in a couple of different types of players and, and to bring in some experience, then it could have been there for us. Again, that's all if, buts and maybes because we don't know. We could have signed players for money and it could have been absolutely rubbish. Um, that that value might not have been there in the market. It is hard to sign in January. Um, I've gone on a bit there. Where do you stand on it all? Again, I can I can see both sides of it, and this isn't just for Sunderland either. It's, it's for all clubs. It is harder to sign the right players in January. That's not always the case. Ross Stewart came in January, but it then did take him half a season to kind of really turn into the player that he's kind of become. Um, could they have gone for it more in January? You just don't want to sign the wrong player, do you? You don't want to sign the wrong player, put him on a two, three-year contract, um, and then you're kind of stuck, kind of then wanting to shift someone off the wage bill that you that doesn't fit the system or doesn't fit the the style of play that Sunderland want to, to go going forward. But quite clearly, the squad has been left pretty short, and now Tony Mowbray is having to play players not really in their natural position, with Dan Neal having to go into the holding role, Joe Geldhart having to lead the line when ideally they'd be playing in different positions so of course you can see both sides of it clearly Sunderland have been left short partly down to misfortune as well as we've said losing your captain and your top goal scorer any team's going to struggle losing those those sort of players in Ross Stewart and Corey Evans but Sunderland you could argue did need players there to replace them as we said we were saying in the summer that they only had one yeah, yeah, midfielder yeah. in Corey Evans and they didn't yeah. address it in the summer they were fortunate that Evans was able to play most fixes in the first half of the season. Now he's out for the season. Um, again, they were unfortunate with Ellis Sims as well being recalled by Everton. They were yeah. trying to sign another striker in the final few days of the transfer window and it didn't come off. So, as I said, I can see both sides of it. Um, you don't want to kind of jump too soon and sign the wrong player, but clearly this the squad has been left short now um, and has looked stretched in the last couple of games. The, the Corey Evans one, the more I look into it and the more I'm thinking about it, the the more you do see a few holes in in that signing. I don't think anybody would argue that Corey Evans has been a bad signing. He's, he's club captain. He was part of the team um, that got us through the playoff campaign, defeated Wigan Wanderers, captained the club at Wembley. I think Corey Evans at Sunderland has been a net positive, no doubt about it. Um, but when we signed him, we knew about his, his injury record. He played nine games, nine championship games in the 2019-20 season. 18 games the season after he came to Sunderland in League One. You know, Sunderland's medical team and Corey Evans himself have worked really hard to get him fit. Um, he's then started to do well, but then to, to have him fit and firing, but then to not really have a natural replacement behind him or even somebody that can can drop in and out of the, in and out of the first team and, and sort of dovetail with him with that experienced role. Um, seems a bit nonsensical to me when you when you consider one his injury record and two the sheer amount of games you've got to play in the championship and the schedule, Ethan, as well, especially with this World Cup season. As you know, there's been a massive backlog of fixtures. I think that's that's the the, the little micro decisions like that are, are things that really annoy fans, and you can see why. Yeah, I think we've even regardless of Evans getting it, the not a freak injury, but a long-term injury for the rest of the season. But even still, it's coming back to how much you're relying on certain players with a smaller squad, because this could have easily easily happened to other players as well that we have become quite reliant on, like Danny Bart, for instance. If yeah. him or Ballard gets a long-term injury, then we look really... I know O'Neill did 
do well with Ballard in centre of defence for a game or two, but you you can't solely rely on your key players like Stuart, Evans, Bart, etc. Well, all the time. Pat- Pat- Patterson as well. I know Alex yeah, Bass has exactly. only, played, only played once for us in a Carabao Cup game, but what happens if Patterson you know, gets a, a Craig Gordon type injury you know, Jermaine Defoe type of player like that stamps on him by accident or something and he breaks his... I hope yeah, it doesn't exactly. happen. The worst case scenario in here, but where's the backup behind him as well? Yeah, I think there's a fine line between you've got to play you've got to play your best players in every game or as much as possible, as much as, as, much as they can do, but you also have to tread the fine line between over-relying on them, which... I think we have been guilty of, but that's because we do have an inexperienced an and small, relatively small squad as a result of this sort of recruitment model. So I do think that at times we have relied on our key players, but then you have to do that and you have to put your best outfit forward as much as you can. So it is a fine line and I think maybe they, ha- maybe they have slipped up with with the recruitment, but then also you've got to play your best team as much as possible and injuries can happen and it's just it's just unlucky that they've came to such key players but we're not the only ones who's going to be dealing with injuries so you just like Alex Nail always used to say you've got to put your big boy pants on and it might be <laughs> might be the perfect might be the perfect chance and might be the perfect way to embed these players is just to say look go for it like we're we're probably well barring an exceptional exceptionally bad run of form we're not going to go down mm-hmm. so it might be the best opportunity to say go and go and play a free-flowing football and show us what you can do really yeah we're up to, to nearly 40 minutes now so i'll um i'll wrap this up joe the the question the world wants to ask is that will there be a preview pod for the norwich game there should be yeah good there should be again should be. no pressure but we haven't talked about norwich at all so even if we can't get an opposition right which we usually can i'm sure we'll um we'll we'll do another podcast about Norwich won't be just because we enjoy them so much, Joe. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Ethan, yeah, exactly. Ethan, pod debut. Thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. No worries, I enjoyed. Thank you. Anytime, no problem at all. Um, yeah, so you can find this podcast in all the usual podcast places. Head over to the Sunderland Echo website for all of the latest news and the build up to Norwich, including Tony Mowbray's pre match press conference, which will probably be on Thursday, Joe. Friday, maybe? Um, possibly with it being Sunday, yeah. We, we don't know yet. It's usually yeah. on Thursday, but with the game being later. We, Absolutely. We'll keep you all informed. But yes, once again, thank you very much for listening to the Raw Podcast. <laughs>